0: Well, hey, everybody. I'm starting to feel a little under the weather today, so I had to uh, cancel our recording to go see if I can get some Tamiflu or whatever it is the kids are doing. So in lieu of some uh, fascinating conversation between the three of us, I thought what I'd do is uh, give you a little preview of the new show we have, Software Defined Interviews. Now, I am always loathed of uh, these these cross-promotional things, but what I've done here is I selected some of the parts uh, from each of the two that we have so far that I like, or I should say one part. Uh, to give, give you a sense of what, what it's like, and just also to give you a little bit of the content. So uh, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, and I'll come back and tell you a little bit about what they've arranged for you listeners. But first, uh, in the in the first little excerpt that I have here, is uh, we did an interview with John Collins, uh, an analyst that I've known for a long time, about GDPR, which I forget what GDPR stands for. Something very obvious about uh, governing your data in uh, the EU, and at this point, uh, what we've come to is I've kind of we've gone over like a lot of the description of what it is and uh, some you know sort of analysis and, and things like that. And when we jump in here, I started to ask John uh, about the specifics of what GDPR prescribes. Right. Like, when do you have to work on notifying people and asking permission, what kind of acts and things like that? And it leads to an interesting discussion, uh, especially of determining what a person is or versus an entity and things like that. And then he also uh, jumps into his theory of whether GDPR will work, if you will, whether its intentions are chasing after the right thing, and therefore what's in the regulations are chasing after it. So uh, take a gander. But surely there must be yeah. sort of like specific statements about what these things are, like like what you must do, or or as you've kind of been indicating, is it more just describing patterns of interaction? And if that pattern emerges, like just to try to nail it down, for example, if this data is given to a third party, then stuff comes into effect or or is it more detail as far as what those patterns are of, of data use
1: they've actually done a really good job of um, making it really simple, and that's where the the notion of responsibility comes into it so if you, so what, what I'm saying around um, uh, being able to justify um, legitimate interest in doing things, mm, right. you have to be able to justify legitimate interest in giving that information to someone else.
0: That makes uh, sense.
1: Or you, or you have to set, show that uh, the person consented unambiguously to you giving that information to someone else. And then, here's the clever bit the someone else also needs to demonstrate legitimate interest for holding that information, for processing that information. So they have to explain why they've got it and, and what they're doing with it and, and how that's um, helping the, the customer. And potentially, they have to show they also have uh, the unambiguous consent um, or contractual uh, opt-in uh, by the customer. Okay. Now so, the, so,
0: so there maybe, maybe there's a – to use uh, – uh, an RDF term from the Web 2.0 days. There's a, there's almost a recursive tuple of every time there's a piece of data, you have to define what the data is, the justification for keeping it, and if a third party is involved, it's recursive, basically, right? Like any, correct. Like you've got to always specify any piece of data that you have. You need to. It has to be audible about what you're doing with it across across those three things and then and then uh, everyone down the line has to specify. This is why people were sending me emails about complying to it.
1: <laughs> yes, because if you're a, a, a every person who's holding data about an EU citizen is a data controller. Every organization right. who is doing that is a data controller and these regulations apply to data controllers. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you've got I, I don't know quite I mean to be honest with you, if you guys have got my email address because you've got it in your address book, I don't know where the line starts to apply in mm. terms of um just personal uh, relationship versus, you know, business and political interest. But generally it falls down on the side of you're a business, you're holding customer information. You're holding partner information you need to say the reason i'm holding this information is because this is a, a partner of mine and um right uh I, I email them
0: that's right that's right and we are definitely just going to post your email address on twitter right that's, <laughs> <Everywhere>. that's... yeah <laughs> now I, I i i at least have a have a couple more questions but one of them is uh so when it comes to to complying and implementing with it like it goes into effect in like may or something if i remember right and and last i checked y'all have the same calendar system over there so everything will be cool there might be that british daylight saving time at some point that always terrible week of scheduling but i think we'll get over that and, it's uh,
1: worse for us than it is for you. <laughs> you know, that's the right. Number of yeah. You know, like the co- number of conference calls I've. You know, you get start getting that sequence of emails and messages, slightly more desperate each time, and then the one that says it's all right, we'll reschedule. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so <laughs> the first, the, the, the first question is like clear. Well,
0: again, tell me if if my uh, if my questions that end in a period uh, in are incorrect here. But clearly, if you're like Facebook or Google, it's just like you got your own unique problems and that's a whole other, you know, or if you're Axion or whoever, like there are mega data people and they're going to, or companies and they're going to have all sorts of unique stuff. But in general, uh, like what do you think companies and I guess other government, government organizations probably need to uh, do it as well. Right. But so what do organizations need to do to figure this out? And, you know, I asked this question because, well, for many reasons, but one thing that's kind of interesting is at least in reading the, uh, the book of all knowledge, Wikipedia, about it. It said there were estimates that it would just cost like $100,000 to figure it out, which that seems really low. Like that seems the amount of money most companies would spend on like paper towels in the bathroom. And so like mm-hmm. $100,000 to comply with some regulation seems exceedingly low, but maybe it's a lot easier than, uh, than I would think it was or it would be.
1: How do they think of these figures? And I hope you paid Jimmy Wells your $5, by the way. <laughs> That's <'cause>, right.
0: <laughs> Not knowledge boy, dies in darkness. You,
1: um, so every organization needs someone responsible for compliance. That's going to cost $100,000. Ah, right. Uh, every enterprise organization is, is going to need someone that is uh taking that is getting their head around this stuff and and most organizations do have um so i i think it's really important to understand that this is not something exceptional compared to what organizations were already trying to do when we talked about uh uh customer uh you know cyber security risk or um uh, data, everything like the PlayStation attack where all those customer records were, were lost and therefore it was a really good idea to put things in place that made that not happen mm. it's still a really good idea and by resolving that really good idea uh, and responding to it you're already doing the right things so th- th- this this is not something amazingly out there this is something that organizations should have been on the path of anyway um in terms of however doing it before well no one's going to do it before the may 25th deadline and also <laughs> there's so much complexity and ramifications around it um uh the the uk's uh, information commissioner's office the ico um is all still developing its own evolving guidance around this stuff mm. so in in terms of but what if all the what ifs no one knows what the answers to the what-ifs are yet. Yeah. And, that, that, and even if they've come up with answers as one-offs, what will emerge are kind of more generalized answers to those what-ifs. Yeah, I,
0: I mean, my general sense is, let's say you're someone, uh, I don't know, what pops into my head first is like Ingersoll Rand, who makes like, engines and pumps and, and a few other things. Uh, they manufacture machines like no one cares about the, oh, that's that's machines. the one I was just thinking of. That's incredible. <laughs> and, and so like for them, well, the, you know, they they need to spend some money to make sure everything's covered and probably hire some outside consultant or hitch it to whatever thing they already have going on with one of the, uh, the three or four consultancies. But, you know, there'll be some things like email lists and stuff they have to comply with, but basically like for their, uh, their pumps like doesn't apply. So, they're probably pretty okay. But then if you got into an organization, I guess even when you, once you get into media and entertainment companies, they're the ones who have to start worrying. And then definitely once you're a Facebook, it's time to start freaking out. And I would imagine if you have like fitness trackers and things like that, you got to freak out. But the, uh, mm-hmm. there's probably a limited set of types of industries that really need to take it super seriously or they're going to start paying
1: 10% of their revenue if, if they screw up. I, I think that the ones that were – so the, F- Facebook in this scenario reminds me a bit like Microsoft in the mm. uh, trusted computing scenario back in the day Yeah. when uh, everyone was saying, you need to sort this out. And they were doing lots of things that made it look like we were sorting it out, but a lot of them were just kind of um, noise. And over time, they did sort out a lot of things. Um, but, you know, like – interoperability we 've got an interoperability survey coming out that shows how people want interoperability uh, It was all just quarterback stuff um, well they could just work out where the ball was um, and facebook similarly they're going to be putting out a lot of stuff out there in in terms of how they respond to privacy, etc Google by the way, are a lot off the hook and it's like your engine scenario. They don't need to know who the person is that's typing in the search terms.
0: Oh, yeah, that's
1: interesting. To be able to, they just need to know roughly where they are, and they can know pretty well where they are. They need to know uh, what they're typing. They um, what the person who's been typing those things typed in the past. uh, Where you know where they've been in the past, so they can hold uh, a whole bunch of information about. A random entity that's doing things yeah i like i like that I like that that's, that that's, doesn't that's, breach gdpr that that's a fun sort crazy. of
0: like uh to overthink it like a philosophic thing is like is a person the collection of all their as steve gilmore used to say gestures and all their interactions mm-hmm. or is that its own thing that is not a person and if it's not a person we don't need to worry about it but it d- does the combination of all this stuff constitute a person or not? And, and I guess it sounds like under GDPR, it, no, it does not constitute a person. <laughs> it's, just, well, it, it's just sort of like a headless idea
1: of what might be a, a thing. <laughs> that, and this is, this is why GDPR is that, – that's the main flaw in GDPR um, because it protects data about – people and it sees data as the thing and people as the the entity that's being protected what it doesn't Hmm. do is where the a bit like in the matrix when you can stare at the zeros and ones and something comes into uh, you can see the shape of the person that's as much the person as the the person in my mind
2: just maybe a comment and just your final thoughts. Like I, I think you're kind of coming up one level from GDPR. Like this is, you know, why does this conversation happening? And it's sort of this ongoing struggle of humanity. As like we all as single human beings, we like the notion of free, right? And using free stuff. But then we often don't really understand what we're giving up, you know, to to get that free stuff. So we don't want to pay Facebook, but we want to use Facebook. And it it seems like... GDPR is like yet another step in the favor of like, you know, having the government, right? Regulators step in and say, hey, you really need to know this um, as a person. But I don't know, you know, I guess it kind of comes back to what we were talking about Facebook, like, are people really willing to like, to like, actually take it on and learn it almost like password security, right? It's like. You can just only tell people so many times to like use a good password. But, you know, I think studies show that people don't <laughs> want to do it. So I don't know. I think sometimes we think of these regulations as like these very like wonky kind of things. But underlying it is really kind of a, a more simple thing in human beings, right? Like we want free stuff. We're not really good at understanding the long term consequences. We try to fix that. And we always come up with these imperfect solutions.
1: Uh huh. Absolutely. Um, shall I respond to that? Yeah. yeah sure let me respond to that so so uh, where i where i th- obviously I, I thought about this an awful lot uh a because it's uh immensely complicated just by the way while i think about it they started thinking about gdpr in 1995 and it's taken 12 years to Come up with the pan-European legislation and, and glo- pos- potentially global legislation. That's how long this has taken, and that's why probably we're looking at it from a Web 1.0 perspective. Um, sorry, two thousand. Yeah, tw- uh, twenty two years, probably right. Yeah, no, 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 no. Sorry, sure. it's twelve years. It's two thousand and five. My, okay. my my mistake. So they started thinking about GDPR in in two thousand and five, and it's taken 12 years for them to, for them to come up with this and that's why it's more of a, a web 1.0 perspective and that's the an indication of why it's here right now i think we would have carried on working in the same way of this free stuff kind of model had it not been that the yeah they thought about it all way Back then, but it's taken so long for them to actually come up with how to actually resolve it, and that's why suddenly there's there's loads of interest, and it's back to the fine. Of course, it's back to the yeah, fine. Yeah, of course, the fine. Um, but on the so on the free stuff question, um, where could this possibly go? And this is where I, I put a, I probably overthought it so much, but then I've kind of come back from the the brink of um, vanishing uh, <laughs> into my orifice about thinking about this stuff, but. There's, G, G have coined the term digital twin. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one on the Internet of Things side of things. Yeah, yeah. The only way that we can resolve this and actually put in place legislation that matters is not thinking about people and data. It's thinking about the two things as being synonymous. So the, the real issue that matters is not whether or not you've got my data. It's not whether or not you know why you've got it or how you're using it or whatever. The real issue is... Whether you uh, con me out of money, whether you steal, whether you abuse me, uh, et et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Just like in the old days before we had data. And (laughs) if you're doing it with me in the virtual world versus the physical world, it shouldn't matter. Um, So I wonder about the the whole privacy regulation as being a red herring in the long term and whether or not we'll actually go back to are you you misselling? Are you um, abusing my my rights as a person? Are you um, snooping on me, et cetera, et cetera, versus uh, the, the data-centric models we've got at the moment?
0: Well, as mentioned earlier, this episode, as so many episodes recently have been, is brought to you by our friends at Datadog. They've always been a, a great supporter of the podcast. And right now, uh, if you want to go check out their product, which I'll tell you about in just a little bit, all you have to do is log in to uh, when you if you go to datadog.com slash software defined talk, create one dashboard and they'll send you a free T-shirt. I'm wearing mine right now as I try to do. It's purple soft. I also noticed today that uh, you have to pull it. Da- you have to tuck it in, which is good because that's one of those long ones that actually has room for tucking it in. Now, what does Datadog do in, in case you haven't heard about it? Well, they have over 200 uh, integrations to various technologies that you might be running, want to take care of in your uh, cloud native DevOps digital transformation. Strategies and hoopla. They, of course, have AWS and Matt Ray's favorite Chef. They'll manage, they'll monitor Docker for you and they'll pull in logs for you. And uh, they have great collaborative features where it's not just uh, one person who can look at that. You can make these dashboards to share with your team, work on for your when you're diagnosing things. You can do end to end tracing and you really do get a sense of uh, visibility, not only into your applications, but into the underlying infrastructure that you have. And, you know, it works for individual things and in a cloud scale. It really is the kind of SaaS monitoring platform that uh, way long ago, when, when the three of us used to work on it, we, we were always angling towards this kind of offering. So definitely check it out. Uh, all you have to do, go to datadog.com slash software defined talk, and, uh, you know, poke, create an account, poke around there, you make one dashboard, and they'll uh, send you one of these fancy shirts. Now, as another recommendation, if you go to the show notes here, go to software defined talk.com slash 121. They've been publishing recently some sort of, uh, I don't know what you would call them, red book style overviews of types of things you would want to monitor and how Datadog monitors it. And what I like about it is it's not just sort of like give credentials to this and watch yourself monitor it, but it actually gives you a sense of the things you would want to monitor, how you would do it, and why. And so they have one on uh, RabbitMQ, which I'm sure you could generalize it to sort of like general queue monitoring, and also uh, doing uh, Java application monitoring, which is always uh, interesting to me because I think that's the last thing I knew how to program. So if you're interested in all that, be sure to go, go to datadog.com slash software-defined talk. Uh, you know, just check it out, create a dashboard, and we'll definitely send you a shirt. So with that, uh, let's let's jump back into the sampling from software-defined interviews, uh, which, you know, you go to software-defined interviews.com. My intention here is that you'll like these segments that I've gotten so much that so you'll go subscribe to it. And not only listen to these full episodes, but go back and look at the other ones. You know, we put all the software-defined talk, members-only, white paper podcast episodes in there. So you can go through the back catalog of things that were previously only available if you paid for them. But this one, um, and I'm releasing this uh, earlier than this full episode will get released. So you get a tiny preview here. This one is with uh, an old friend of mine, Nancy Goring who now works at 451 Research. I got to know her when she was an editor and journalist at various places, but she covers monitoring and performance management and log management, all that kind of stuff. Uh, In in the, the full interview, you can hear her define that space more and us talk about it. But in this segment, which I did at the end, I was, uh, as I was saying, stealing from another podcast that I like. I came up with a few topics to try to do sort of like a rapid fire thing just to get her take on it. And I like the result. I, I think I'll do it again. But you can see, uh, you can get a good idea uh, of, of uh, a couple of her takes on things and then we discuss things more. But it gives you, a, it's, it's kind of fun. It gives you a good sense of uh, her, her sort of incisive mind. But definitely check out the rest of the episode. I think everyone who listens to this would be interested in the uh, her take on the systems management area. So uh enjoy this little excerpt. So I'm going to try a new format here. We'll see if it sticks. Okay. I'm, I'm direct I'm stealing this from uh Tyler Cohen. I don't know if you ever listened to his podcast, Conversations I don't. with Tyler. You should check it out. Oh, okay. It's, it's okay. fun. He's yeah. he's kind of a weird dude, but it's in it it results in good content. So okay. so here's the theory. I'm going to ask you about a few companies in this area and just give me like a brief brief reaction to them, how they're doing or whatever and news events okay. and like you know, these are so. We'll see. I might have to specify the question more, but like I said, you you seem to be able to keep up with my uh, vague nonsense. So that that cool. sounds good. Or <laughs> okay. I shouldn't say keep up. You can interpolate my <laughs> open ended craziness. Uh, cool. So here's the first one: Cisco and App Dynamics. What's uh, what's up Man. with that?
3: Who knows. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a that's a good answer. All right, we'll move yeah. on. <laughs> really? <laughs> sure. I think we should okay. leave it at that. That's perfect. Okay. And then and then so yeah. do you cover do you cover at all like ServiceNow and or Spiceworks?
3: Spiceworks, not at all. I cover the, so ServiceNow, you know, I, I went to their conference last year um and I talked to them occasionally. Mm-hmm. I don't cover that the space that they're in so i don't cover like all their competitors or anything i i talked i'm interested in them just because so many of the vendors that i follow have ServiceNow integrations and so many yeah, of the yeah. you know enterprises that are buying monitoring tools like do things with ServiceNow. so i, I just want to be aware of what they're doing but i don't follow them like super super closely no, that
0: that that makes sense i think so i think ServiceNow still kind of a big deal
3: <laughs> yeah, it's – I I am sort of baffled by them because I, I hear a lot, like, end f- customers, there's a lot they hate about ServiceNow. Like, they think – they hate – there's the CMDB. I mean, not just ServiceNow, but they hate CMDBs, period. They hate <laughs> right. um, some of the, like, incident management stuff that feels, like, antiquated if you're – if you want to use something like a pager duty instead or something like that. So, like, there's a lot of – like animosity, but they, they're huge and they're growing and, you know, everyone wants integrations with them, which indicates to me that they're everywhere, right, yeah. in every enterprise. So kind of an interesting beast.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I remember their last uh, knowledge – I went to like three of their conferences and the last one I oh, went yeah. to, it was just like it – was, it was a – I think – well, I think it was a good reaction I had and a very genuine reaction of like I was walking along the booth floor and I was like, holy shit, this is massive, right? And th- yeah. This – this community and this pot of cash is yeah. just like crazy, and uh, the
3: conference is enormous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for for a single, and I don't remember the number of attendees off the top of my head, but I remember being astounded. I mean, for a single vendor conference, it's an enormous conference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. A, good indication of you know how much interest there is in a product yeah. right yeah. <laughs> who,
0: who, who would have thought that help desk was such a big deal but but there you are so final one i know seriously so so the final yeah. one so if you look at this uh, i think you know the most uh, fun and hopefully they're actually good too but i i wouldn't know the most fun uh, like little company at the moment you know even this week is like honeycomb i think they were funded yeah. last week so what yeah, do you think if, if if they had uh, if they wanted to burn some hours with you What's something that you think they don't know that they should know to be successful?
2: Um,
3: I mean, I, th- I think they actually know this, so I'm not totally answering your question. But I think that, the, you know, right now the thing is I think Honeycomb is super appealing to, you know, like an, a, an apps pro or whatever you want to call them uh, who's been doing it for 100 years and, you know, really knows how to troubleshoot a problem. Yeah. I think they're they're awesome for that. I think for people who are newer to the game or who are used to using y- your more standard kind of, you know, monitoring type of tool, I think, you know, you, honeycomb is going to look difficult and um, you know, not maybe not be as useful. So I think I think that they down the road need to appeal to a broader audience if they mm. want to get huge. And I think they know this. You know, I mean, I've talked to them obviously, and, and I think they know that there's only so much you can do at one time, right? Um, but I think that's sort of going to be key to their growth is being able to figure out how to be you know easier to use for people who aren't like total pros at this stuff. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I that's that, I always found that difficult as a uh analyst to like try to give advice to startups because it's basically like uh <laughs> like i have a lot to tell you <laughs> and, yeah and and i i also i also know that you can basically choose like half of a thing <laughs> like, exactly like you don't right. you don't really have uh the time and resources and attention to do much more than anything. <laughs> so, right, right. So anyways, But it's
3: always good to have at least a focus and an interesting focus. Yeah. So, you know, some startups come out and it's like they're doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. And you definitely wouldn't say that for Honeycomb. Like, I think they're doing something really interesting in a very particular niche. Um, that's a good niche to go after. So um, and, uh, you know, uh, get, getting funded is um, a good thing, probably indicates, you know, that there's other people who think that there's value in what they're developing so um yeah i think they're they're doing cool stuff and obviously very fun people to hang out with
0: <laughs> well that's going to be it for this episode i hope i didn't uh, offend you too much by reusing material here and, and doing doing that kind of thing but i i really do think that our software defined interviews is, is going to be a great series we've been holding back for a long time from interviewing people but I think uh, with with some careful selection, we'll, uh, we'll have some interesting topics to dive deep into people. So hopefully uh, you'll go over to softwaredefinedinterviews.com, subscribe to the podcast, start getting it, get these two episodes we've excerpted from. You should be able to find that, you know, in Overcast and everywhere, things like that. And also, as always, if you're interested in talking with us and talking with fellow listeners, you can go to uh, the Slack thing that we have set up. If you go to softwaredefinedtalk.com, you can see the link to the Slack up there in the corner. And then every Friday or Saturday, if I forget, but at the end of the week, I send out a newsletter, the Software Defined Talk newsletter. That usually has like a little essay or excerpt from something that I've written and also find gets all of the, uh, the good links and news things that we don't get a chance to talk about uh, on, on the main podcast so much. But it's a uh, perhaps overwhelming exhaustive list, but that's what I do. I collect things and uh, we put it in there in addition to content that we've created, links to the podcast and anything else that's uh, interesting and somewhat self-promotional. So with that, we'll see you next time. Bye bye about sushi is a lot of fun. Now, now, before we get to the, you know, we're going to do a little bit of news, then we'll talk about uh, Kubernetes and other things like that. But you were about to opine on the, uh, the uh, almost uh, is it was it young who said everyone basically has the same ideas, or was that the uh, that radical professor guy? I forget. But uh, so the universalism of meat on a stick. Proceed. <laughs>
1: Yes. Uh, I was just going to say I think every culture has some sort of form of meat on a stick. Um, I guess we learned to cook on a fire, and the easiest way to cook meat on a fire without burning your fingers is to move it away from your fingers, and a stick is good for that.
0: Mm. An early instance of logic in in humankind right (laughs) yeah you know i I was watching uh that first blood movie recently and there's a scene i think where he uh he kills some sort of forest thing and then he just has a big hunk of meat on a stick sort of near a fire which i was thinking (laughs) about that you know that's going to be a very uneven cook uh if if you do it that way but Mm -hmm. i I guess you do what you have to in a situation (laughs) like that that's right Yeah. yeah no meat thermometer well